Good morning. Well, it's good to be with you folks. I'm so thankful for this opportunity. I can't express to you what a blessing it is. It is my life to preach and teach almost every day. And that's what I do for fulfillment and purpose. That's what I do to make a living and that's what I do for fun. So I never work a day in my life. It's absolutely amazing. And I'm so thankful for this opportunity. I feel like I've had a very full day already. I had got in the motel yesterday and I told them to give me a wake up call at five o'clock. I get up and do everything, get ready and be for morning service and all that. The alarm rang and, you know, I just reached over and turned it off, got up and started getting ready and I'd been getting ready for about 40 minutes and why did the alarm ring? I didn't set the alarm. I looked over, it was 3.42 in the morning. Someone had left the alarm set for 3 o'clock. So, it's been a great day already and a full day. I'm so glad to see you all. I really, I'm going to ask you to go to First John chapter 4 with me. I have out on my table some of my books. Uh, this is my fifth stop on this trip to Florida, and I did sell out of some of them already uh, this morning at, at, because, frankly, just had incredible sales at a conference I was at a couple weeks ago. But I have some of them out there. I have some material on Dayspring Bible College out there. I have the privilege of working with just a tremendous Bible college. It is an old-fashioned Bible college devoted to training and preparing people for the work of the Lord. And if you're interested in that or know somebody that is, we'd be delighted to talk with you. We have a wonderful group of young people there and just thrilled with what God is doing. I appreciate this chance to be with you again. I appreciate your prayers. I'm embarking on a very, very full 12 months. It has been a big part of my life to uh, preach and teach in other countries, usually several trips a year. But for two and a half years, I haven't been going. I was in an accident, got hit by a semi-truck, which I really do not recommend for anybody. And that stopped me for six months, and then COVID came, and you couldn't go anywhere. But every place is opening up, and I'm so excited. I'll be a three-day Bible conference in Nassau in the Bahamas in April. And then in, in June, just an incredible moment, I'll be to Australia for the first time. I'll be teaching a pastor's conference in the morning and, and preaching for church in the evenings and the following Sunday. And there'll be preachers there from around Australia and from New Zealand. And that's exciting. I'll leave straight from there and go to Ghana, Africa. Just, a, just an incredible moment. Um, at Dayspring, we uh, video all of our classes. And we have people who go through college without ever setting foot on the property. And I've been trying to encourage people about this around the world, the English-speaking world. And we're actually going to see Dayspring Bible College Ghana open in June. It's going to be incredible. There are some young men there that were students of mine when I was president of a Bible college here in Florida. And some other young men who've come through Dayspring and they're working together. And they're they're setting up a college using, for the most part, our videos. They'll teach some courses themselves. It's all been planned out, what will be done. And I have for years been working with Bible colleges in a variety of countries and a lot of folks trying to piece together Bible colleges here and there. And I've been trying to convince them there is a way to do this where most of the work has already been done for them if, if English is the, the language. Uh, 
And uh, this will be the first full-scale Bible college being set up the way that I've been trying to convince people to do it for years in other countries. I, I just couldn't tell you how excited I am. And uh, it, it's kind of ironic timing going to Australia, to Ghana home. But there was no other way to, to piece those two wonderful opportunities together. Then I'll be going to the Philippines for three weeks in, in August. It'll be my 35th trip to the Philippines. That's my other country. And uh, I've missed being there so much the last two years. And then in December, I will be going to Ghana. Ghana, I'll be going to Uganda the first time. And I'll have, be in three cities, each city, three nights, we'll be preaching an evangelistic meeting to the people in that community. And then one morning, I'll have a three-hour class on the clarity of the gospel. I'll have a three-hour class the next morning on uh, the King James Bible. It's an English-speaking country. And a three-hour class the next morning on Baptist Heritage. And then we'll go to a second city and do that, and then a third city and do that. I'm so excited about that. And then um, in January, it's, it, for 23 years, I spent the month of January in the Philippines. I will be, did not get to the last two years, but I will be back uh, to do that again. I teach in two Bible colleges when I'm there, and just so exciting. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm looking forward to a great year and, and asking my friend, friends to pray for me. I have a meeting every week from now until the second week of November, which is exciting. And along the way, I get to teach some college courses in, in the middle of all that. Uh, books out on the table. Several of them deal with history, U.S. history and world history from a Christian perspective. Can I tell you, as a nation, we are in real trouble because we do not know our own history. It has been robbed from us. And uh, you can illustrate that every single night in the news. I have books back there on Baptist history and the King James Bible as well. And um, be glad to talk with you about them uh, and so forth. Again, I'm very grateful to Brother Hunter for giving me this great opportunity to be here today. Uh, this Last year, I made eight trips to Florida, preaching 21 churches. I'm the easiest preacher in the world to schedule in Florida. That, and it's not the weather. My two grandsons live in Florida, age six and, and three. And I always managed, you know, to get here a little early or stay a little late or do both. So anytime, Brother Hunter, if you, if you need somebody to lead your adult Sunday school class in prayer, I will make the trip. Okay, but thank you so much for the chance to be here today. We're in 1 John chapter 4. And if you look at verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And then you look at verse 16. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. The beginning at the end, there's that declaration, God is love. Kind of gives you the theme of the chapter pretty well. God's love. That's an incredible statement. It's an incredible concept. It is something most of the religions of the world don't have the faintest inclination of. God is far off and you're hoping to find some way to please him or to keep from making him too angry so that things won't be so bad. It's a completely different definition of love. God is love. 
Uh, Let me say clearly, this chapter does not tell us that love is God. That's the attitude an awful lot of folks have today. Love justifies anything. If you love it, if you want it, if you desire it, that must make it okay. We hear that line over and over and over again in our day. That is not the truth. Love is not God. But God is love. And and there's some things for us to to learn about it that will be a help to us there. Start, would you look with me in verse 7 and 8? By, by the way, the man that God is using to write this, in his early ministry, you know what he's known as? He's the son of thunder. I mean, he's saying things like, Lord, fire ought to come down from heaven on these people. They're not following us. But you know how he's remembered? As the apostle of love. God did something that turned the son of thunder into the apostle of love. But by the way, he'll do that kind of thing for us too. When we look at verse 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The Lord produces a unique love in the hearts of people. It's an extension of his character. And to explain that, I, I personally do not believe a knowledge of the Hebrew and Greek language ever does anything to correct our English King James Bible. But sometimes it helps us to understand our English King James Bible. There's a principle in languages called polysemy, that a word can have more than one definition. It happens all the time with all kinds of words. Some languages are not polysemic. But some are, English is, Greek is. And and there's four primary different Greek words that all in English would properly be translated love. And it can lead to some communication problems in English, but because we can get the meaning of everything confused, those four different words, one describes sensual passion. That word's never used in the Bible, by the way, but it's in the Greek language. One is the word that is used for family. You have a love for your family. You may not like your family, but you love your family. You used to have an uncle that had serious mental problems. He's a kleptomaniac. Seriously, anytime he went anywhere, he had to steal something. And he was really good at it. I don't care how much you watched him, he'd find a way and he would get something. And, and, and we'd all be scurrying around the house to find out what was missing when he left. But they found out how to get me to put all my toys up as a little boy. They just told me Uncle Levi was coming. <laughs> Everything was put up, man. I mean, there was nothing out loose. I did not really enjoy his company. But I was still heartbroken when he died. You love your family. But that's a different kind of love. Then there's a Greek word that refers to Friendship. How you feel for somebody, you really care about them. It can even be used of an animal that has a bond with you as a pet. But then there's another word that's interesting because the first three words, as far back as there's record of a Greek language, you have those three words. This fourth word love for love appears about the time of the New Testament. 
didn't exist before that. And when Bible says God is love, and it talks about us loving one another and us loving God, it uses this word that didn't exist before. Now, the, the Greeks would take it and twist it and turn it all sorts of different ways, the way human beings do. But it appears that God created this word for the New Testament. By the way, God, along the way, often uses words there was no record of before. Because a word represents a concept in a human language. And in, in when he's giving the Old Testament Hebrew, there were truths that God wanted to communicate the Hebrews had not come up with on their own. So God had to give them a word. Same thing in the Greek, in the New Testament. There were words, there were concepts the Greeks could not come up with on their own. So at the time the scripture was to be given, they just didn't have them. So God created a word. There are other times God took words and gave them a brand new definition that they never had before in order to communicate a truth because there's an awful lot of Bible truths men could never come up with on their own. It just would never happen. So here we are. God gives us a word about the time of the New Testament. It's agape. It gets translated love. That's the proper translation, just like the other three words could properly be translated love. And the Bible tells us God is love. Then it tells us to love him, this new word, and to love one another. So, well, we know about the word for passion, and we know about the word for family, and we know about the word for friendship. What, what, what do you need a new word for? What is the idea that required a new word to communicate? You all ready? It's God-produced love. Love that stems from the character of God, love that we would never come up with on our own. By the way, that is what we're solely devoid and lacking in our culture, where people are so pitted one against another. I, I come as a cultural background. My parents were hills of Kentucky, hillbillies, and they used that term as a compliment. They were hillbillies. That's what they wanted to be. That's what they chose to be. They really were from the hills. They they didn't believe in things like air conditioning and and interstates and things like that. And, and, And for a long time, they didn't believe in color television. And I remember... When my dad changed his position on color television and he and mom were having this big argument about whether to get one or not. And as a little kid, I was rooting for my dad all the way through the course of that, you know. And he finally won and we, he brought home our first color TV. I just thought that, I mean, life had been transformed. And uh, they moved, ended up living in inner city Indianapolis. I don't know much about Indiana, but... We're called from Indiana, those of us were called Hoosiers. People ask, what in the world is the definition of the word Hoosier? And people debate about it, but said, you, you know what a Hoosier is? A Hoosier is a Kentuckian whose car broke down before they got to Michigan. <laughs> and, and, and at a period of time I grew up, there was a whole section of Indianapolis that was called Little Kentucky. And... Um, it bred a, 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 frankly, a very racist attitude towards other parts of the city. 
I was raised with that. And personally, you can all think anything you want to. I have come to the conclusion that there are not different races. There's one race, the human race. There are different characteristics. Some people are taller. Some people are shorter. Some people have hair follicles that last for a lifetime. The more intelligent ones don't. (laughs) They're cosmetic outside differences, but not different races. That is my belief, but it's not how I was raised. It's not how I was taught. And and there would be be conflicts, and I got beat up one time pretty badly by six fellas, and and after I had made a racist comment, and they chose to cure me of it, and, and actually did a pretty good job. I don't think I've ever said that to anybody again, ever. But uh, I'm in Bible college, and, and I've just started preaching. I'm a freshman, and. I knew that preaching was what my life was. And I would see preachers that were frustrated because they didn't preach much. And I said, God, I don't want to be that to be me. So I made God a deal when I was an 18-year-old Bible college freshman. And by the way, I know you're not supposed to make deals with God, but I was an 18-year-old Bible college freshman at the time. I said, Lord, if you'll keep me busy being a preacher, I will never care about the size of the crowd I preach to. I will never care about the, any money connected with the preaching. But God worked on my heart about that. Said that was not enough. I would need to never care about the skin color of the people that I preached to. And finally, one day, I surrendered to that. And I said, God, if you'll keep me busy preaching, and by the grace of God, I've been busy ever since, I will never care about the size of the crowd. I will never care about any income connected with the preaching. And I will never care about the color of the skin of the people that I preach to. God's kept me busy. And I've tried to keep my half of that. But I'm telling you, I've preached in countries all over the world. If there's a color out there, I've preached to it. And then God let me pastor in inner city Chicago. And people would say, how many races in your church? I said, I don't have the faintest idea. I couldn't divide it up if I wanted to. We were singing one time a little song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Some of my folks came to me after and said, Pastor, we don't like that song. I said, it doesn't mention brown. He said, a bunch of us are brown. I said, we don't want you to use that song anymore. So I took it out of the program. And we actually got a thing from the government wanting to know how many races were in our church. And they listed 19 races. I don't know how they came up with them all that. But I wrote back and said, I can't fill this out. We've got people that don't fit any of those categories. We live in a world where people are pitted against one another until God does a work in their heart. And God gives them something their culture would not have created. We're trying to create peace and harmony doing it ourselves. And it isn't working if you hadn't noticed. But when God does a work in people's heart, something that is God-produced, that comes from that character that is uniquely God, then things change. The Lord has provided us a very unique love available that stems directly from his culture, from his character, rather, And can transform our culture. 
when I pastored in Indianapolis. We had a fellow started attending our church on Sunday night. He was a black Muslim. And uh, I talked to him a little bit. He was very adamant in their beliefs. And um, he, uh, I asked him, so why are you coming to church? He said, curiosity. He said, I'm looking around, seeing all these folks. And I, I think about that when I see the crowd here today. He said, I just want to be here when it all explodes. He came to church on Sunday nights for two years waiting for it to blow up because we all had different skin tones. We wore him out. He finally gave up. Never did explode. Closest thing to racial trouble we ever had among our actual church folks. One of our Filipino girls came in one night bawling and in tears because one of the white guys had thrown a snowball at her. Now, I had to explain to you, that's just, you folks probably don't understand this. Up north, snowballs are just a normal, routine part of life. She thought that was a special targeted attack because Filipinos despise snow. And explain, this is just how we treat one another all the time. And nothing to do with race. Glory to God, aren't you glad that God is by character love? And that he can produce that character in our hearts and our lives. Is that not glorious? And that's demonstrated for us. Look at verse 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. You want to know? Manifest the love of God to us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. In his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Man, you want proof of the divine character of the love of God? Jesus Christ came to be our sacrifice. Somehow, in the plan of God, I confess, having studied it all these years, it's, it's well beyond me, but somehow in the plan of God, a divine, holy, just God, whose character is determined by holiness and justice, his character is also determined by love. And so he devised a plan by which his justice could be satisfied, his holiness could be satisfied, and at the same time, his love could be satisfied. Which my sin, which has to be paid for, was paid for. His holiness was satisfied because his, my sin was paid for by one who himself never sinned and who was just and holy. Concept of justice is satisfied because the sin is paid for. And God's love is satisfied because salvation is offered to me. What a story. I was preaching in a church in northern Indiana one time on an Easter and a man came forward during the invitation. I always want the pastor to do the invitation because he knows the crowd and the people in the setting and I always turn over the pastor and I'm sitting there. He came up and sat next to me and he, he said, man, he said, what, what you're talking about was just incredible. He said, I work as a cashier at a local hardware store. And he said, the pastor was just in a hardware store yesterday and said he gave me a ticket to church. He showed me the ticket. It was what he called a gospel track. Ticket to church. And he said, 
I've heard that three times from people, by the way. In Chicago, I had a man come in one morning uh, service, and he said, I- I've got a t- somebody gave me a ticket to church. I hope it's good for today. I said, yes, absolutely. This is good. Got saved that morning, too. Became a faithful church member. But th- this fellow came and sat next to me, and he said, I'm in so much trouble. And I thought, it's Easter, and if I don't go to church, I'm going to be even more trouble with God. Because he said, I'm being prosecuted for a crime. And he said, I'm guilty. There's no doubt they're going to send me to jail. He said, my finances are ruined. We're going to lose the house. And my wife is divorcing me. He said, I just thought, I wish I could be saved. But he said, I thought in order to be saved, I got to fix my legal troubles first. I got to fix my financial troubles first. And I got to fix my marriage first. But he said, if what you just said is true, I could be saved right now. Man, have I got good news for you? It is true. Not because I said so, but because God repeatedly said it over and over again. He trusted Christ as his Savior that morning. We have God's love demonstrated for us in the sacrifice of God, the cross of Calvary, to pay the penalty for our sin. What a glorious truth. Many of the religions of the world are based on the idea of finding some way to satisfy God. What must you do? What must you do? What must you do? And they differ among one another on what you should do. But Bible Christianity doesn't cry out do. It cries out done. It was done. It was done. It was done. On the cross of Calvary. When the Lord was the propitiation for our sins. You can't find a really good explanation of the word propitiation because it doesn't fit our understanding. We usually call it covering. I pastored in Chicago. We had carpet and had got some bad stain on it that they couldn't remove, even though it was tried and tried and tried. So you just put another carpet on over it, right right up front. And uh, so it's a covering. But propitiation is more than that. Propitiation is removing a stain or an offense so completely, it's as if it never happened. I know some of the new fancy English Bibles don't like the word propitiation because they people can't understand it. I'll tell you, I don't really understand it either, but I sure do rejoice in it. He is the propitiation for my sins, and that demonstrates the love of God. Another truth, real quickly, if you'll bear with me. Our testimony is based on our love for the brethren. Would you look in verse 11? Beloved, if God so loved us, what also to love one another? This, this God-produced love. You see, but some people aren't easily loved. i got to admit that. But God produces a love. We have to love one another. No man has seen God any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us. But he has given us of his spirit. Would you go with me to John chapter 13 real quick? We'll come right back here, so mark it. But go with me to John chapter 13. There's a most incredible statement in the Bible. I remember when this jumped out at me. John chapter 13. Verse 34. 
and five, verse 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love, agape love, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Here's a new commandment. In the Old Testament, we were required to treat one another the way we want to be treated. So we were not to mistreat each other in any way. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament era, we're in New Testament economy, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Something's possible in us that wasn't possible before. And we're supposed to love one another with that kind of love that the Lord has for us. Look at verse 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. And did you get that? Nothing else is promised to us as a surefire method of convincing people of the truth. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. It's when people see a love that only God could have produced that they believe this is real. Yeah. Did y'all get it? And listen, I'm an independent fundamental Baptist and happy to be. But for a long time, our crowd said, you know, our testimony to the world is correct doctrine on every point. I believe correct doctrine is incredibly important. The truth is, that's not our testimony to the world. They don't understand it. And and then we taught that our standards was what convinced the world we were real. And I'm for standards. I think sometimes we might have gone a little wild with it. But I think having standards are important. They help keep people from sin, and that's extremely important. But the truth is, the world does not understand our standards. They think we're nuts. Do you know what is an unanswerable testimony to the world? When they see Christians love one another. When they see them take care of one another. When they see them interested in one another. It says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Back to 1 John chapter 4. Our testimony to the world is based on our love one for another. Then love, God's love for us, our love for God, our love for one another, is the uniqueness of Christianity. So look at me in verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he is God. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we might have the boldness of the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Bible Christianity, Bible truth, trusting Christ as your Savior, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life can produce something in you 
that is not matched. Yeah, I, I know various religions have ethical codes and systems, some of which are good and some of which are bad, and there are points at which there's character in this or that or the other and all that. But God does something in the hearts of people. And I've seen it. I saw it on more than one occasion, especially when I was pastoring the inner city of Chicago, and somebody would come to me and say, I don't know what you all did to that person. But say, I want that. Yeah. We'd especially have it in our Friday night addictions program. When a man was in the addictions program and he trusted Christ as his savior and he, he'd had a real background of being in trouble. He called me not long after he got saved. He told, he had four adult children. He told all his children he'd gotten saved and he called me near Christmas and he was heartbroken. He said, not one of them will allow me to come to their house for Christmas because of the things I've done. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I thought everything would be different when I got saved. I said, you live for the Lord and let God work in your life and you be faithful to the Lord. There will come a time when people see it. Two years later, he called me. He said, Pastor, I got a problem again. He said, I got to be in four different places on Christmas. He said, I don't know how to get to all four of them. Well, a lady came out of church one Sunday morning. She didn't know what to do. She was involved in an alcoholic counseling program that was right across the street from the church. and Her life was a mess, and she'd been having dreams about hell. She walked in. I'd never met her. She'd never been in the church before. I preached on hell, which is a reality. It's not fashionable to believe it anymore, but it's still a Bible truth. I happened to be preaching on hell. She came forward, got saved, wrestled with alcohol, got past alcohol, but began to have one of the most tender-hearted burdens toward people. I want to try to help them. And We were having a banquet at our church, and she brought her adult daughter. And, and, and she purposely said, I, I, can my, my daughter and I sit with you and Cindy at the table? Because I'd like for her to, to get to know you and maybe have a chance to talk to her. And her mother got up to go do something, and, and the daughter looked at me and says, what did you do to her? She said, whatever it is, it's the greatest thing I've ever heard about. I mean, God produces something in us that is an extension of the fact that God, by his nature and character, is love. And God produces that in our heart and allows us then to be able to have that, some of God's love, be part of our character as it's expressed to other people. It's a closing thought. It's not new. It's sort of a repeat of what we already looked at. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We don't have that divinely produced love. We couldn't offer it back to God if we tried until God does something in our heart first. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, He's a liar. He that loves not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? It is true God makes that love available to us. It is not true. We always express it. We always let it work in our hearts so that it always carried out. But it's always there available to us.
I got saved in a denominational church that did not teach salvation by faith in its doctrinal statement. Somehow the one pastor of that congregation got a hold of the truth of salvation by grace and he preached it. And as a 10-year-old boy, I got saved at the church. When I was 15, the bishop found out what he was teaching and fired him. And I remember being stunned. I was a 15-year-old bus kid. I didn't know anything about churches or denominations or headquarters or bishops. And I talked to the pastor after he'd been fired. And he said, find an independent Baptist church, which is what I did. Years later, I ended up years later preaching the pastor under whose ministry I was saved, preaching his wife's funeral and then preaching his funeral. But I was preaching his wife's funeral. And the bishop that fired him came into the funeral. And they had a time for folks to say things. I, frankly, I wasn't a very good spirit about it, like I should have been, I guess. But he, um, he, I, didn't, I wasn't a very good spirit when I saw him come in. And uh, that's how anybody wanted to say anything. And he stood up. I thought, oh, no. He said, let me tell you something about the lady pointing to her body in the coffin. He said, back when we were having a big battle, he said, this lady was always famous for fixing chicken noodle soup for people that were sick. And some people believed it could cure anything. I actually believed that as a child, that her chicken noodle soup could cure anything. He said, we were in the middle of a battle in which I was firing her husband. And there were a lot of tough things being done and a lot of difficulty. He said, I got the flu. And in the middle of a fight, I hear a knock on my door. And I go open the door. He said, there she is. Kettle of chicken noodle soup. And the promise of her prayers. God does that kind of thing. Because God is love. And this commandment have we from him. That he who loveth God. Love his brother. Also. God makes it possible. And God commands it. That's the most glorious truth. Salvation's a gift. You don't earn it, qualify for it, work for it. You don't achieve it. You don't gain it through the superlative. It is a gift. It is a gift for 10-year-old bus kids. It is a gift for people who've never heard this message before. I was preaching in the Philippines some years ago, and and uh, often I will go out and be in a, out in a, what they call a provincial church, and, and, and we do that on purpose because... Having an American is a draw there. I mean, it's just a big deal. And you can go to some of these places and preach and the whole town will come. We were there and the whole town had come. It's the first time they have an American preach in their town. They gave the invitation and a lady who I later found out was 86 came forward and she was kneeling. And, and most of the people there speak English, but she was talking in Tagalog. And she kept saying the same thing over and over again. And a man came up to me and uh, to translate, tell me. She was saying, I didn't know. 
I didn't know. I didn't know. He's saying, she didn't know Jesus had died for her. She didn't know salvation was a gift. She was stunned when she found out. But she trusted Christ as her Savior that night. I was back in the same town the next year and asked about her. And she'd gone into eternity. Knowing that Christ died for her. Salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Christ died for you. Paid the penalty for your sin. Salvation is available as a free gift for you. The Bible declares that over and over and over again. If you're here this morning, never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You ought to trust him this very day. I was preaching three weeks ago, a little country church in Indiana. Maybe it's four weeks ago, whatever. And um, new pastor had, had been an assistant pastor to me in two different churches, actually. And uh, I was preaching and preaching like this. And a man came up after the service to talk to both of us. And he said, for me? I mean, this is for me? He would die for me? How could he die for me knowing me? I I tell you what, you understand, this love was not a concept human beings could design or explain or create a word for. God had to give us the word. But God is love. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ your Savior, you ought to trust him this very day. God bless. Pastor. Bow your head and close your eyes. We'll close our service with a time of invitation. Marvelous, wonderful message preached on the love of God. Touched every heart and every mind in the building. Maybe you're here today and you're just learning for the first time of God's love for you. That sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for your sin. Your sin paid the price for you. So that you could be saved. By grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Pastor, how do I do that? You believe that Jesus Christ was your sacrifice. You paid for your sin. You understand you can only get to heaven because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The quietness of your voice, you express your faith and your belief by acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. And you ask him to forgive you of your sin. You ask him to come into your heart and dwell you by his spirit. And you tell him you want him to save you and take you to heaven when you die. In your seat, right then and there, you can have that opportunity. Pastor, I'm here today and I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want my name called. But I need to be saved. And if it's for me today, then today I want to receive it. With heads bowed and eyes closed. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand, I would have a prayer with you. Pastor, I'm here today. I'd like to be saved. I need to give my heart to Christ. Any hand that would go? I know you're thinking, 
I know you're analyzing. Christian, the power of love. God produced love in you. Changes you and changes the people around you. I think it's the greatest attribute you could ever have as a believer is to be known of a person that has God's love in them. By this shall all men know that you're my disciple. I trust that you um, have humbled yourself to God's love. I trust that you've let the spirit of God bring about God's love in you and that work has been produced. Maybe you need to do business today with how God's love is flowing in and through you to your relationships, to your family, for the cause of Christ. Maybe you just need to be secured in that wonderful love. We give a time of invitation every service. The altar will be open. Men will be here to pray with you. Ladies here to pray with you. If you'd like to be saved and trust Christ as your Savior, we'd love to take a Bible and show you how to do that. You can just, in a moment, walk down the aisle and tell one of the people you'd like to be saved. They'll greet you. Christian, I'm asking you, church members, a pastor, are you known for God's produced love in your life? The possibility is there. The reality is there. It's the practice there. Would you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we give this time of invitation. All of us are searching our hearts, our minds, wanted what they had. And so they presented to me who they had in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that's the reality in every person that knows you in this room. Touch our hearts. Bend our knees now. We love and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Men of God, if you'll gather for our invitation, the altar is open. Christian, if you'd love to come to pray, maybe you're here and you need to know the Lord. We'd love to take a Bible and show you how. Just as I am is our song of invitation. Church family, you lift your voice. Men of God, be in the aisle to receive the folks. Our invitation is open. You come. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I cast I am. Conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Stringer, if you'll make your way to the lobby so the folks can greet you there. I hope and pray that you're uh, working out the God-produced love in your life. I think that is the greatest quality as far as influence that you could ever have. Not your money, not your, your success, not your wisdom. The greatest sphere of influence you can have is God-produced love in you. 
do not forget that. It's a wonderful day. It's the day before Valentine's Day. It's the Lord's Day. And I trust you have a great day tomorrow, a great evening tonight. The song for us to go home is just one of lifting. I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me. See you back on Wednesday night. God bless you. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. Singing glory, hallelujah. Jesus lifted me. God bless you. You are dismissed.